So we are looking at questions 156 and 157, and I hope we'll get through both. Uh, 156 asks this, is the word of God to be read by all? And the answer says that although all are not to be permitted to read the word publicly to the congregation, yet all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families, to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into the vulgar languages. And the next one is that is the question, how is the word of God to be read? Very important for us. The Holy Scriptures are to be read with an high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that he only can enable us to understand them, with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. We'll look at each of these phrases individually, but let's ask the Lord's help. Jesus Christ, we confess that you are the word, uh, that by your voice the heavens and earth were fashioned, and you've spoken new life into our hearts. You've brought us to life by your spirit, and we ask that you would help us, even in this lesson, to come to a higher esteem of your word, to greater reverence for your word, and a greater desire to see your word work within us as we come to it with faith and expectancy. And so we ask your spirit to be with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, let's look at this first uh, question here. We're asking, is the word of God to be read by all? Which strikes us perhaps first as kind of a weird question, right? Why would we even ask if everyone should read the word? It seems obvious to us. But remember, this is being written in the context of the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church. That didn't permit the word of God to be read by all. They didn't for many years permit it even to be translated. Um, it was only to be read by um, the priests. They considered that the lay person didn't have enough understanding to really understand the word of God. And so they didn't permit all people to read it. But in contrary... The Reformation view was very different. They permitted the word of God to be read by all. Martin Luther uh, was, is known to have remarked to a, a high Roman Catholic leader saying that, you know, as I'm doing this work of Bible translation, at some point, the solo plowboy, he's going to know the word of God better than you guys. Um, this idea of dispersing the word of God was essential to the Reformation. But at the same time, they begin with this proviso. Not all are to be permitted to read the word of God publicly to the congregation. And we might think, okay, why might that be? That seems interesting. So in our OPC, we have our confession, but we also have something called the Book of Church Order. And the Book of Church Order is not something we're bound to in the same way, but it provides the general guidelines that they think it wise for OPC churches to operate. And the guidelines say that most parts of corporate public worship ought to be led by the minister. They say that's normally how it ought to be. It should all be done by the minister. However, it is appropriate for both ruling elders and um, men being trained for the ministry to lead in some or if, or even many parts of corporate worship. But only ministers are allowed to give the greeting, the benediction, and administer the sacraments. So in our church order, only the minister can do those three things. Give the greeting, the benediction, and administer the sacraments. And we don't allow, in our church order, um, members of the congregation to lead aspects of corporate worship. 
when it's public corporate worship. Now, that's where we chose to draw the line. Um, I'm not sure many would say it's an issue necessarily of sin, but that's the order that we follow. Um, In the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a very similar denomination, they draw that line a little looser. They allow any member to read the Word of God in the congregation, although they would still... um, have the same standards as far as, say, preaching and such. But that's where we draw the line in the OPC. And so what might be some of the reasoning behind this, right? There's going to be some sort of scriptural idea coming behind this. And it stems partly from first, we can look at Deuteronomy 31. In Deuteronomy 31, We hear this, that Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests and unto all the elders of Israel. When all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and the stranger that's within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law." So there was a particular duty that the priests in the Old Testament had to read the word of God before the whole assembly. They were in this sense um, representatives of God before the assembly, particularly reading the word. Now, when the synagogue system developed, which was kind of their corporate worship, um, they allowed any man to read the law. Um, We know in Luke 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he opens the scroll of Isaiah, though he wasn't a priest, and he reads from it. So they, they allowed that. But there's always been something that's particularly suited for the work of those who have been ordained to the service of the Lord to publicly read the words of the Lord. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, Timothy, as a minister, he has these three tasks in public worship. The public reading of the Scriptures, exhortation based on the Scriptures, and teaching, the teaching of doctrine. These are all um, a group of activities that are well-suited to a minister. And so the reason is not skill that um, anyone could read, but the issue is one of fitness. It is fitting for a minister to be the one that reads the Word of God publicly. So in Presbyterianism, you can almost think of the system in many ways like a, a republic, that the congregation has representatives who govern on their behalf. Ruling elders are men elected by the congregation that are meant to represent the congregation's interests um, with the wisdom of God in the session, in the elders' meetings. The minister, in a similar way, is elected and called by a church to be, in a sense, a representative of that people before God and a representative of God to the people. That is, when they are preaching the word of God, we are to, to, to almost bypass the minister and see God speaking to us through a particular chosen vessel. When the minister's up front praying, they're, in a sense, representing our collective prayer, but channeling it through one mouth to the Lord. So there's this issue of representation by ones elected by us to represent us. So you might even think of this idea of why should only the minister read the word of God publicly? 
as if, um, if, if we elected a local delegate that went and was introducing some new legislation and then was returning from the cabinet meeting or whatever, and bringing news, say before the internet, of what had passed, um, it might seem a bit odd if they were having their press conference and they just called a random person out of the seats and said, hey, you come and read the announcement of the new legislation. You'd say, hey, no, you're a representative. You've sought this out. You've worked it through. You declare to us what is the word from on high. And so that's kind of a similar picture to we're saying you, this person who's been studying the word of God and is a commissioner of God, a, a one sent from God to bring us a word, you declare to us on behalf of God, what is his word? So not that I don't think it's a matter of sin, but in our church order, we consider that wise and a matter of fitness. Does that make sense? Any questions so far? That, that this idea strikes most evangelicals as very odd, right? We're a very um, egalitarian society in that this thought that why can't we all do anything in corporate worship? It is odd. And like I said, there's, there's ideas behind this reasoning, but not like it's an ironclad, hard and fast rule. Yeah, so our, our church order says ruling elders okay. can lead any part of corporate worship except the greeting, benediction, and the sacraments. And the reason the sacraments are included there is that the administration of the sacraments is very tied to the preaching of the word of God. We don't have services where we only do the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper, um, it, it in a sense, attaches to the word of God so that it's not just a vain um, superstitious rite. And so the one who's been licensed and called to preach is the one that's similarly called to speak those words of institution for the sacrament. But um, yeah, we allow men training for the ministry and elders to lead other parts of corporate worship. Okay, so with that proviso, he says, yet all sorts of people are bound to, a re to read it apart by themselves. Um, we can think of Deuteronomy 17, 19, which is particular instructions for the kings. So it was told the king that the, this book of the law shall be with him, and he shall read it therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, to do them. So remember, this is still in the day, not many people can read, books are expensive, but of course the king is going to have a copy of the word of God. And in this task of ruling, it is important for him to read it, it says, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear, the God, fear God. And this applies to us, we're all ruling over different areas of our society. Even if you're just a child, in a sense, ruling over your bedroom, that's your domain. Um, we want to be people that in all everything we have influence in in this world, we want the word of God to guide us and to direct us how we may um, live as God's representatives here on earth. So the implication is that if it's for kings, it's for all of us in those similar areas. Revelation 1.3 also tells us that there's a blessing for the one who merely reads the, the word. It says, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Now he's saying there's actually a blessing in the very reading of this word. And we know it's not by a mere reading. It's a reading attended with faith. But there is a blessing for the reading of the word of God. And so also when we think of this, 
if we're thinking of reading the word of God as a necessary duty, we have to remember that it's only a duty insofar as there is an ability, right? Those who can't read don't have um, an obligation to read the Bible if they can't, right? And it's important for us to remember that throughout most of church history, hardly anyone ever read the Bible. They heard it read at worship services. Ancient Israel heard it read in the synagogue, but so few people could read. And the copying of the scriptures was so laborious that most people didn't have access to it. And even at the time, um, once the printing press came through, books were very expensive. I forget the exact figure, but it was something like in the 1800s, the average book would be something like $3,000 in today's money. So you almost can think of like, if, if your collection of books was kind of like cheaper used cars, and for every book is basically that equivalent, um, you wouldn't have that many books. And I, I say this because, um, and this might sound a little controversial at first, but I think there's a danger we have sometimes of making reading the Bible the hallmark mark of our Christian spirituality. And when you want to know how someone's doing in their spiritual life, you want to encourage someone, you basically just ask, have you been in the Word? Are you reading the Bible? And it's become the sort of litmus test of total Christianity. Historically, you never could have asked someone that question because they didn't actually have access to the Word of God. The hallmark mark of spirituality in the scriptures repeatedly and throughout church history is always your prayer life. The prayer life is where you essentially get down to the heart of where someone stands in their relationship with God. And I say this because in my life, I feel like there's been times where I've been deceived by being consistently reading the word, yet being distant from God. Because the danger is it's pretty easy to just let your eyes glance over a page, do it perfunctorily, and just move on without any engagement with God. Whereas it's a lot harder, in a sense, to fake prayer. It's really hard to actually pray without doing something to engage your heart. And so I think we want to be careful not to just say that we're good with God as long as we just read our Bibles. No, it's a lot more than that. It's a true engagement with the Word of God. It's a true meditation on the Word of God, like we're going to see, but especially the prayer life. And so let's not make it easier on ourselves thinking that we're doing everything we need just because our eyes glance over the words on a page. Does that make sense? Do I need to clarify anything there for someone? Okay, good. So don't, don't think I'm saying you shouldn't read the Bible. That's not important. I just think it's, be, it's be retained an elevated place when it has a high place, but we often forget prayer and even just the attendance on public worship, right? Most people, their intake of the word was limited to the preaching of the word and therefore meditation on the sermon and the word of God as expounded in the sermon, that was their main engagement with the word of God throughout the week. It was a deep meditation on the word that had been opened the prior Sunday. And actually it developed in the Reformation in Calvin's Geneva, they had services every day where people could come and hear the word of God read and preached. Even um, in the Anglican church for many years, daily services in times where um, the ability to read was rare. So there's a duty to read the word of God by ourselves if we can, right? So this is say, we do have the ability to read and we do have Bibles aplenty. And so to neglect the reading of the word of God when we have such easy access to it, that does say something about our hearts, right? We have such an easy opportunity. So we have no excuse to neglect the reading of the word of God. 
And it really, people say, I don't have enough time to read. You would read through the whole Bible in a year if you read for 12 minutes a day. 12 minutes a day. That's, that's very, very doable. We always make time for things we prioritize. So you should need to read the Word of God yourselves, and it says with their families. I know we often think of Deuteronomy 6, teaching it to your children, but I really like Psalm 78, 5 to 7, where it says that he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I love this reason for teaching your children the word of God, for really training them to know the word of God. It says that the reason is that they should put their hope in God, that is really come to trust God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This big picture stuff, right? If you remember from last semester, the catechism asked the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? And it says that they principally teach what we're to believe about God and the duty God requires of man. That is, when we're teaching our children the scriptures, we're teaching them who is God, what has God done, and how would God have us to live? These three things mentioned in Psalm 78. And I think one thing we should do is we need to distinguish between family discipleship and family worship. Okay, so family worship is particularly worshiping God as a family. The acts of worship being prayer and the hearing of the word of God. And the reason we are called to worship God as families is because that we believe that families are true units. Okay, This is especially true in Presbyterianism, where we recognize that God deals with households as households. So we say, because households are a thing, because a household is a distinct, discrete unit in God's mind, it is fitting for a household to render God worship as a household. So not just each member worshiping God on their own terms, but actually worshiping God as a household. So because households exist, households have a duty to worship God as households, which particularly is like a worship service here. It's prayer and the word. Now, family discipleship is broader. Family discipleship is the process of doing this, making sure that children are trained up, raised in the ways of the Lord to know God, to know his works, and to keep his commandments. And that's a parental responsibility we see in the book of, father, uh, of Proverbs consistently. Listen to the words of your mother. Heed the instruction of your father. Parents have a duty, a responsibility to ensure their children are raised in the discipleship and admonition of the Lord to have a Christian education. And so whatever mode of schooling you do, whether it's public, private, or homeschool, you always have a duty to ensure that your children know God. And it's up to you to check that what are they learning at school, what are they learning at Sunday school, and what am I teaching them in the home, and making sure that nothing's being missed. This is the duty of family discipleship, which is distinct from family worship. Um, any, any questions on any of that so far? The catechisms are a really helpful tool here because it does get 
the holistic nature of the Christian life. It gives those doctrinal foundations of God's works, but also it goes through God's law and the duty he requires of us and the path of spirituality, prayer, the word, the church. And so to which end we're told the holy scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages. Vulgar just meaning the common language. And again, that was a strong emphasis in the Reformation, to bring the word of God into the local language. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.24 is talking about people speaking in tongues, like literally speaking in other human languages in the church. And it's talking about the need to have it translated. It's saying, when you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say amen at your giving thanks, um, seeing he understands not what you say? He's saying there's nothing special even about this supernatural miracle of speaking in other languages. He's saying that is actually not even helpful for people unless it's translated, because understanding is everything. Um, The original languages of the scriptures are not magical. They're communicative vehicles for delivering God's truth. And we need to be careful to not be superstitious about them, to think that, ooh, someone who's studied Hebrew or Greek, they can like get the real jolt of power from the word of God. It's not the case at all. Um, Interestingly, Jesus Christ himself, most of the New Testament authors, when they quote the word of God or allude to it, they don't quote the original Hebrew. They quote a translation of the Hebrew in Greek called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, it wasn't even that good of a translation. In a lot of places, it's like really loose, like um, almost what might, you might think of as those Bible translations a lot of you like to condemn, to say, ah, oh, that's too loose and um, not literal enough. Uh, and they freely quoted from this translation of the scriptures, which seems to have a lot of inaccuracies in the sense of it's not this perfect rendering. But they understood that the communication of truth, um, it communicates the ideas of the scriptures accurately, and it's to have that understanding that matters. Um, And so I'm not very good at Greek and Hebrew, but having studied it, what, what you realize very quickly is you want to find all these sneaky things that'll like come to light in the original languages. And mostly when you're working with them, what you realize is that, oh yeah, the, the English translation got it right. Like that is, like there's nothing else that it means other than what it's translated to say. And now occasionally there's nuances that are missed. Occasionally there's things that you pick up on, but in general, there's no mysterious underworld in Greek or Hebrew that you're significantly missing out on by knowing the English Bible. And especially if you have the practice of reading a few different translations, if you're looking at one verse in particular, through those differences, you're going to catch where there might be ambiguities in the original language, if there's ambiguities in the English translations. So don't feel like you can't actually access the word of God because you're only reading an English translation. Um, The ideas communicate very powerfully either way. And even um, as a translation philosophy, in Nehemiah 8.8, it talks about how they would read the book of the law. They read in the book of the law of God, they read it distinctly, They gave the sense of it and caused them to understand the reading. Now, that's what good preaching of the Bible does. But there is a sense in which a good English translation is giving the sense so as to cause the receiver to understand the reading. And that's what good Bible translations do. And so there's been an unfortunate, I think, um, 
an unfortunate incident in the last like 15 years in the church where there's been this really popular like Bible translation dissing club. And I think it's partly because the ESV has done a really successful marketing campaign of trying to paint themselves as like the only faithful Bible. But there's most translations of the Bible you come across are really good translations, really well done by really faithful Bible Bible scholars. Um, People use words like literal translation, and that's actually not even really a true statement to apply to any translation. Um, And so... In in my opinion, I think the King James is a great translation. The NIV is a great translation. The ESV is a great translation. And so I think we need to be careful about um, getting this like, this translation is the most superior of all translation. They all have pros or cons, and a good Bible translation is one that achieves the objectives of what it's trying to do. Is it trying to keep the form and sentence structure of the original? Is it trying to communicate the ideas of the original? So I think we need to be careful about um, condemning Bible translations. Hey, any questions before we go on? Comments? All right, okay, question 157. How is the word of God to be read, okay? We've seen we have a duty to read it. We want to be reading it every day. So this is a really important question. How should we read the Bible? Do we read it just like any other book? No. Okay, so we're looking at this answer here. The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and a reverent esteem of them. Psalm 19.10 says, More to be desired are God's laws than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And right, if you've read Psalm um, 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, all declaring the praises of the word of God. Um, David thinks of it as sweet. He thinks of it as precious like gold. And our attitude towards scripture ought to be this one of reverent humility, that we would give them our attention. And if it's like gold, that means we want to be hunting for it like we're mining for gold itself, something of great value. And so we read it this way with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God. Okay, and Paul praises the Thessalonians for this, saying, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. Paul says, you receive this not as my words, but as God's words. Yeah. One of the things that this makes me go back to is the translation issue. Um, Because I'm in agreement that we shouldn't be judgmental and critical, but I still think we need to be discerning. Because if we're looking for a reverent word of God that is the word of God, and we turn to, say, the message, where it's more storytelling and, you know, people's opinions are sort of added into, well, this is probably where they were coming from or their emotion at the time. I feel like, for me anyway, I lose some of the reverence of that and it becomes more story than it does reverence word of God. So what are your thoughts on Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you have to recognize, like, what is the translation trying to accomplish? And I think technically the message isn't a translation. So I don't even think it should be thought of as a translation. Um, It's a paraphrase, an intentional, idiomatic rendering of the scripture. And if you use it in that way, it can be a really beautiful, helpful, um, 
I would almost call it a devotional commentary on the scriptures or a a, a devotional reimagining of scripture, where if you use it as that, I think it can help scripture come alive to you, but you have to recognize that it's not actually a translation of the Bible. And so I think if we get those categories right, I think that's, and so generally, if you know, is this translation trying to communicate just the ideas or is it trying to communicate um, the actual sentence structures? I think, you know, that's where when you read the preface of a Bible, you kind of know what they're trying to do and then don't expect more out of it than what it's intending, I'd say. Um, but yes, we want to have an, a reverent esteem for the scriptures, firm persuasion that they're the word of God. And this has been the trend of all modern scholarship and liberalism. It's always to start removing God as the author of scripture to saying only men are the authors of scriptures. And the more and more the attitude is to focus on the human author of scripture, the human authors, then the divine author, that's always the move towards liberalism. Um, We talked a lot about this last semester and how do we get that balance right between the divine author and the human authors. But what makes scripture different is that it has a divine author. And so to read the words of men, but receive them as the word of God, that's a distinctly Christian approach to the scriptures. And actually, as maybe an example, actually, I'm not going to get into this. Okay. <laughs> um, I was going to talk about the Song of Solomon. And that he only can enable us to understand them, right? You remember Luke 24, 45, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and it says he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And so we can recognize that the Spirit works a particular understanding in God's people, which even the secular scholar of ancient literature is not going to understand. So an unbelieving expert in the Bible is not going to have the understanding of Scripture as even a simple-minded believer, because as 1 Corinthians says, they're spiritually discerned. And so the Bible is not to be studied and interpreted as any other book. That's a really popular phrase you hear. You study the Bible like you'd study any book. That's not true because the Bible's not like any other book. And so we read it this way with a desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them. We're going to be looking at James 1.24 tonight, actually, where we're told to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we come to the Bible ready and willing to do what it says. So that is, it's not only that our mind comes to the scriptures, not only that our heart but our will comes to the scriptures ready to resolve to do what is found therein. And we come with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them. That is, we, we want to come to scripture with this framework of what's it overall about and what's the scope, right? So we go back to that early question is what do the scriptures principally teach? what man's to believe about God and the duty God requires of man. And so you can come to scripture with that rubric in mind. What does this teach me about God, who he is and what he's done? And what does this teach me about man, how I ought to live, how I ought to respond to God? And the matter and the scope. So the scope here, um, there's two ways that this got taken in Reformation studies. Um, the, the confession says that, that when we look at scripture, the scope of the whole is to give glory to God. So we know the whole book is about giving glory to God. But then there was also a theological signification of this idea of the scope, which in Latin they called the scopus scripturae. And they said the scope of scripture, 
Um, that is almost like the lens through which we view the whole is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus makes sense of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus makes sense of the commands and everything in the Bible points to Jesus, right? He told them the things concerning himself. And so with Jesus as the interpretive lens, we see Jesus as the scope of scripture, um, the scope through which we look that helps make sense of the whole. We come to scripture with meditation, And really, this is the command we're given more so than reading. Um, It is more important to meditate on Scripture than to merely read Scripture. Psalm 1-2, his delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 119-97, how I love thy law, it's my meditation all the day. Joshua 1-8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. And so again, remember, if you couldn't read it frequently, you had to meditate on the parts you had memorized, meditate on what was read in Sunday morning. And when you're meditating, it's almost like a, like a, like a cow chewing the cud. You're mulling it over and over to try to get every bit of nourishment, every bit of um, encouragement, every bit of blessing from the word that you can. And the main goal in meditation is to have the scriptures that you're mulling over in your mind begin to warm your heart. Because we need to learn not just to understand God's truth rightly, but feel rightly about it. So when we read about God delivering us, we don't just want to know that he delivered us, but we want to feel the truth of his deliverance, grant us that peace and sense of freedom and confidence. And it's usually only by that extended meditation that the heart is actually warmed to feel properly about Scripture. We want our mind to be engaged, but we want the right heart feelings about Scripture. But even more so, it says with application, right? So we go from mind to heart to will. Um, We apply these scriptures to our lives. And so again, as we're meditating with our mind, it's warming our hearts, but then also we're thinking about our own life, and then we can see how we might live this out, how we might practice scripture. Um, And that's a beautiful fact about the truth of God being the author of scripture, is that there are eternal, unchanging truths in scripture and principles that do apply to all peoples at all places at all times. And so we can rightly apply scripture to our lives today. We're to read further with self-denial. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, right? We come to scripture willing to submit to it, willing to obey like a good child to a parent, like a servant to a master, ready to deny what our will might be for how we want to live, how we want our future to turn out, and ready to submit our will to God's will as revealed in the scriptures. Not mine, but yours be done. And then lastly, and importantly, to come reading the scriptures with prayer. Psalm 119.18, open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I remember um, Pastor John Piper saying that this is the prayer he prays every time he comes to scripture. He has a handful of them, but he says this is his favorite. Always to come asking God, as I come to your word today, open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. And that's important because 
um, if you saw, saw the video from last week, the word of God only works by the spirit of God. It is only the Holy Spirit that wields the word like a sword to transform us. The words alone don't do it. It's the words um, acted upon by the Holy Spirit. And so if we recognize that the transformation that comes to us through the word of God comes by way of the spirit of God, then we will be much more in prayer depending upon the spirit to enlighten our minds, to renew our wills, to revive our affections. And that's where the prayer is always going to come. We come saying, Lord, this might just be a bare word unless your spirit blows upon it. Therefore, send your spirit, blow upon your word, apply it to my life, change me, mold me, shape me through it. And so we come as students dependent really wanting to rely on God and um, supplicate him for his spirit to work in us by the scriptures. So never read the Bible without even offering a short prayer to God that he would bless this time. Something as simple as that. Thank God for his word after you've read. This is especially fruitful. Pray the word as you read it. As you come across phrases, um, apply them to your life as you go. I was reading in Acts this morning, and um, Paul says that his message was to proclaim to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and bear the fruit of repentance and obedience. And how great to just take and say, Lord, I want to repent of my sins. Help me to do that. Lord, help me to turn to you today, look to you today, and to do those works that you re require and call forth. So much we can just we can turn into prayers as we read, especially in the Psalms. I highly recommend praying through the Psalms as you read, turning um, the psalmist's praises into your praises, their supplications into your supplications. And so the summary here is that we come to Scripture as whole people seeking to have our whole selves changed. That is, we want our mind to come to greater understanding that is to have faith the conviction of faith but we come also wanting our heart to respond with appropriate affections to have hope in god and we want our will to respond with the resolutions of love and duty the great christian virtues faith hope and love our mind our affections and our will we want scripture to change us entirely from the inside out. And so this is all to say that it takes engagement. With the word of God, it is all about quality over quantity. The quality of your engagement with the word. And you know when you come away from scripture, basically feeling the same as you were before, or you come away feeling refreshed, encouraged, spiritually energized. And you know those times you come away spiritually most encouraged are the times you really engaged your mind. You really engaged your heart. You really thought and prayed and applied scripture. So let's be uh, better readers of the word of God, namely those who engage our whole selves. And not just in our mere reading, but the hearing of the word, which we're looking at next week, how to hear the preaching of the word. Again, very applicable to our lives. Um, any final comments or questions? Would you say that there's benefit to both? 
Yeah, so absolutely. I think there is a place to um, read the Bible quickly to get the view of the whole for understanding. I would almost think of that more as um, an academic study of the word. Like I'm studying to understand it. I want to see the narrative flow. But I think there's um, the devotional or worshipful reading of the Bible. Um, When we have private worship every day, which is always word and prayer, that that is when you want to be actually reading the Bible in a worshipful way. And there are times to just study it, to parse it out, to get a whole scope. But I think um, we, we want to make sure we never miss that deep engagement. So yeah, definitely add on the study, the, the, the broad reading. But I would say, um, you know, I, I do encourage people, don't, if it's burdensome to you to have like a read the Bible in a year plan, don't do it. I definitely don't read the Bible in a year. I read much slower than that. Um, I read as much as I feel I need to for that day to get a spiritual uh, benefit. And often that's reading half a chapter pretty slowly, thinking about it. So don't bind yourself with these arbitrary rules. Just make sure that you're enjoying scripture as much as possible. That's what you want. You want to love the word and really engage with it in a fruitful way. Yeah. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word of truth. Thank you for all these verses we've even heard today that remind us of the power of your word. And we ask that we would be people who depend on your spirit to speak to us in scripture, to change our minds and our hearts and our wills. Lord, we know how much of the world is in us. We know how often our understanding is darkened and we're unwise, how often we're not truly committed to obedience, how often our hearts are cold. And so we ask, Lord, that we would be diligent students of your word. And those who come to it expecting and praying that your spirit would indeed grant us light, would indeed grant us fire in our hearts and a committed, resolute obedience to you. Lord, thank you for this tool you've given us. Thank you that the spirit works by the word and that we have the word of God in our languages, available, accessible. So help us, Lord, not be negligent of it. Let us never neglect this great gift you've given us. Would you bless our worship, our praises to you, our hearing of your word? And Lord, be with us this day. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.